So the title is Live Like Jesus. Live Like Jesus. And in 1 John 2, 6, <clears throat> I believe this is one of the most challenging single verses that you'll ever read in Scripture. So read it with me. I'm going to read it out of the NIV. Um, and it says this, 1 John 2, 6. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. And as you read that, wow, that's, that's a challenge. To, to say, if I claim the name of Jesus, I need to live as Jesus did. Now, think about that for a second. What comes to your mind when you read that phrase, live as Jesus did? Now, I think for some of you that are really familiar with the Gospels, or if you've watched any of the movies about Jesus, I don't know about you, but I, I love movies about Jesus. And I know that some of them aren't totally accurate, but uh, unless it's something crazy like Jesus Christ Superstar or off-the-wall stuff. You know, good movies about Jesus and his life. And you start to think about that, and I, I don't, what comes to my mind, and maybe it does to yours, is, well, does that mean that at about 30 years old as a male that I should be homeless for three years and go from town to town or village to village preaching, healing, and doing miracles? Because that's living like Jesus did, isn't it? That's what we see there, and, and that's a challenging thing. And I have to be honest with you. As a young Christian at times, I thought I should be doing that. I thought I should just quit my job and get out and be a street preacher or whatever it may be. Um, and, and, you know, hopefully seeing miracles happen and people being healed and all that. And I really struggled with the fact that I wasn't doing that. So I don't know about for you, but I think that's a picture we could have in our mind. And I will say that there are people who are called to that kind of ministry. Uh, people that are out on the field, so to speak, and, and do move from town to town or village to village. And there are people that are called to that. But I don't think that that's necessarily what John had in mind when he wrote this particular verse. And I want you to look back again and notice that there's a very challenging contention at the beginning of that verse. It says... Whoever claims to live in him. Now, why would he say that? I would think that he had to say that because there were people who claimed the name of Christ that certainly didn't live like Jesus did. Otherwise, I don't think he would have had to say that. And is that true today? I think we could easily look around and say, yeah, there are a lot of people who claim the name of Christ but certainly don't look anything. Their life doesn't look anything like Jesus' life did. So... I think that John was making a point to us that there are people who claim that. And he's asking us tonight, if we claim to live in him, to ask some questions about whether or not we live like Jesus did. So to answer that, we need to go to the book of John. So if you'd flip back to the book of John, not 1 John, but John, the gospel, chapter 15. John chapter 15. And in John chapter 15, verse 4, Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he says this, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, 
you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, if we look at that word abide that's used here in the New American Standard, if you look it up in Greek, it's the word meno. And this is what Strong's has to say about it. He says it's a primary verb, and it means this, to stay in a given place or state or relation or expectancy, to stay in, in one of those things, in a, in a physical place or in a relation or in a state of mind or expectancy. It can mean to abide, continue, dwell, endure, be present, remain, and stand. All of those words. And I think if we look at all of that together, we can simply say it means to live. It means to live. So let's go back and read those verses again and just substitute the word live for abide, and maybe it'll be a little more clear. Verse 4, live in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it lives in the vine, so neither can you unless you live in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who lives in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So our life in Christ is metaphorically compared to the branches of a tree or the branches of a vine in this case. And no branch can survive unless it's attached to a trunk or to some area of the vine where it's going to be fed by a root. Now, I know this for a fact because I have bougainvillea. Do you have bougainvillea? You know, sometimes you see me and it looks like I got in a cat fight and the cat won. No, I don't have a cat. It's my bougainvillea. Okay? And, and I love my bougainvillea. It's beautiful. It blossoms with these just rich kind of deep reddish purple blossoms. And it's beautiful. But I tell you, it's a pain. Because i got to trim it up. It's in a place where I've got to trim it up. And the thing is, when I trim up my bougainvillea, oftentimes some of those branches that get trimmed will kind of fall into it. You know, you know what I'm talking about here? Are you with me here? And so they kind of get in there, and it's like, it's hard enough. You know, I, I take my trimmer, and I kind of go, you know, like really fast. So hopefully they fall to the side or into the front. So they're on the ground, and I pick them up. But I don't always get them all. And I don't always see that I don't get them all. Sometimes they're just cut and they're kind of hiding in the bush itself. Now, it's kind of interesting because when they're first cut off, they're hiding and then and, and you can't even tell that they're cut off. They're the same color. They're just meshed in there. But, you know, it doesn't take very long before all of a sudden you see the change of color from the green and the red blossoms to this ugly yellowish brown that signifies there's evidence of death. They're done for. And then I have to go back in there and put the gloves on, the long sleeve shirt, reach in, dig them out, and throw them out because they look really terrible. But the thing is, they were completely dependent upon being attached to the rest of that bush, and they weren't anymore. And in that very same way, our relationship with Jesus is one of complete dependence upon him. Dependence for our nourishment spiritually, our growth, and even any evidence of having a, a spiritual nature that's alive in us. 
Jesus points out that we can't bear fruit. Now, what does that mean to bear fruit? It, it can be used in several different ways, but you think of Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit. You can't bear any of that fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, self-control. You, you can't display that without having a spiritual nature, without His abiding presence and power in our lives. And John's showing that if we claim to be attached to Jesus in that way, in that same manner, it'll be evident in the way that we live our lives. That way will look like the life that Jesus led. Now, we have to ask the question, well, how will it look like him? Because we're not Jesus, and we're probably not going to do all the wonderful things that Jesus did, and that's true. So tonight, can I just suggest that we look at three ways that our life looks at Jesus? If if I tried to take too many more than that, we'd be here till midnight. And we're going to be out here by 1130, I promise. <laughs> so can I at least just take three things and say, if, if this isn't an exhaustive list, but one thing we can know for sure, it's an accurate list. These are three ways that our lives can look like Jesus. The first way is this. Jesus lived in complete surrender or complete obedience to the will of the Father. If you turn back in uh, John chapter 8, 28, John 8, 28, since you're right there, it says, So Jesus said, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. That's John 8, 28. Then you go back a little bit further in John 6, 38, he says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of one who sent me. And then in John 5.30, John 5.30, he says this, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of of him who sent me. Isn't it interesting that, that Jesus said, you guys, you disciples, can do nothing without me, but he says, I can do nothing on my own initiative. Now remember, Jesus was fully God when he was here, and yet he was submitted to the Father in all equality, and yet he was still submitted to the Father. If Jesus is an equal in all ways to the Father, and he's submitted to the Father's will, then likewise, we submit our will to him. And that means that we're going to be in complete obedience to him. And John reiterates that in our, in our chapter of 1 John. If you go back to 1 John chapter 2. He says in 1 John 2 verse 3, We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. And then he says in uh, verse 17 of that same chapter, He says, The world and its desires pass away. But whoever does the will of God, the will of God lives forever. Now, before you say, well, that's impossible. And you would be very right to say that's impossible. But before you say that, remember that he has sent us his Holy Spirit to empower us to do his will. A verse that if you don't have marked in your Bible, flip over to it right now and mark it right now. John 14, 16, and 17. If you don't have that highlighted, underlined, parenthesized, something of that nature, do it now. Because in John 14, 16, 
Jesus speaking to his disciples and therefore speaking to us, says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you. And what does it say? Be with you how long? Forever. But you know him. You know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. Just as Jesus said that we're to be in him and he in us, he says the Holy Spirit will do the same thing. The Holy Spirit will be in us. Now, how that pans out, I was telling the, the Firm Foundation class the other day, you know, it's like you wish you could get an MRI, and as you look at the MRI, you'd see the Holy Spirit in there, right? Oh, there he is! Yes, it's true! <laughs> but we don't get to see that. We just know it's there because the Bible tells us that. Now look, on this side of heaven, we know that we're never going to be perfectly submitted. Because we still battle a flesh nature. If you don't understand that and you don't know that, then you need to know it. I don't care how long you've been walking with the Lord, and I've been well over 50 years, and I still battle my flesh nature. Galatians 5.17 tells us that it's going to happen. Galatians 5.17 says, For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. So we know that we're going to have this battle. It's going to continue until we're face-to-face with the Lord himself. It's not going to go away. But the key here, I think, is this. That even though we know we're not going to be perfect and we're not always going to be submissive, it should be our heart's desire to always want to be submissive, to totally surrender to God's will. That should be the desire of our heart as a Christian. And I want to ask you tonight, Have you made that your heart's desire? And I don't want you just to give lips. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I always want to follow God's will. You know, I think as Christians, we can say things like that. and We kind of mean them. But have have we really seriously sat down and counted the cost of what that means? To desire to always be obedient to his will. And I want you to ask yourself that question tonight because there is a great cost to that. It means you're not going to always get to do what you want to do. And there's going to be many times when you might be tired or weary. But just like the song said earlier, are you going to choose to praise him? It's a choice that we make. And are you going to make that choice to say, Lord, my heart's desire, I know I won't do it perfectly, but my heart's desire is to be in complete and total surrender to you. Now remember that I didn't say to ask yourself if you always do his will. You don't have to ask yourself that question because I already have the answer is. And the answer is you don't. You don't always do his will. Even the Apostle Paul said this in Romans 7:18. The Apostle Paul, a guy who I think desired to be totally surrendered to the Lord, said, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the willing is present in me. The willing is present in me. But the doing of the good is not. 
And he didn't mean all the time that it's always not. Obviously, we look at his life. But he's saying the desire is there, but it's not always going to happen. But can you say that with all your heart, that it's your desire? All right, the second way that we can live like Jesus is we look at Jesus' life and we see that Jesus lived the life of a servant. Of a servant. You know, it's interesting, even in his occupation, most likely following in in his earthly father's footsteps of being a carpenter, you know, that's kind of a servant's job. People come to you and say, can you do this for me? And you do it. Um, But obviously, in Jesus' ministry, he was a servant. Matthew 1042. Would you flip over to that, please? Or not Matthew, excuse me, Mark. Mark 1042. Mark 10, 42. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Now on the night before Jesus died, we know this story. But he gave a really stunning example of what it means to be a servant when he washed the feet of his disciples in the upper room, and you can find that, of course, in John chapter 13. And so we read the story of Jesus washing the feet of the disciples, and you know what? That might not seem so impressive in today's culture. It really might not, because we would look at it and go, well, you know, what's the big deal? In fact, I will say that one night, um, in, in, when I was leading the men's uh, Bible study at another church, one of our guys just decided he was going to wash everybody's feet. And he goes over and he gets this bowl and a towel and walks up to each person there and says, take your shoes off. And, you know, it's kind of neat in a way. But there's a big difference in doing that now than what it meant at the time. Because at the time, only the lowliest of the household servants would do this job. They were the ones given that task. It was really considered the worst job you could have as a servant. Why? Well... Um, I'll get to that in just a moment as to why it might seem that way. But we want to look at it and say, so Jesus then was willing to do the lowliest task that there was in order to show how to be a servant to his disciples. And you know, I've thought about this and, and I've tried to come up with a good analogy for today, you know, One that you could look at today and say, well, this really represents it. And I'll be honest with you, I can't really come up with with one. I could maybe think of a couple that are somewhat similar, but you have to understand the significance of what Jesus did with this act. Now, first of all, it happened either at the very end or toward the end of the meal. Now, by custom, that should have never happened. Because by custom, if there was no servant in that house... Then one of the disciples, because Jesus was a rabbi, they called him master, 
one of those disciples should have took it upon himself to at least wash the feet of Jesus. But none of them did. It should have happened before they ever sat down at the U-shaped table where they actually reclined. But it didn't happen. And so they were towards the end of the meal. And what's interesting about that was it must have been really stinky in that meal. Whatever they ate, they must have smelled like them. Because remember, these guys wore sandals, and it wasn't even like the kind of really cool, thick sandals that we can get today. They were generally very thin, um, very flimsy. And so not only would the feet of the disciples be very dirty, but they would probably be, with all the walking they did going around, they would probably have a lot of sores on them, probably open sores as well. So this was a terrible Terrible job. And you ask yourself the question, well, why wouldn't any of them have done that to Jesus? And the answer is this. If you remember at the time, they were too busy talking about, well, who's going to be the greatest in this kingdom? They were too concerned with what their place was going to be in this kingdom that they thought was coming that they didn't even think about the fact that their master was reclining at table without having his feet washed. And Jesus was determined to give them an example of what it truly meant to be the servant of all. And if you read the whole account, if you go to John 13 and read the account, you should read it again. And you realize that a couple of things happen here. Number one, it says Jesus took off his outer garments, which means he was probably basically just in one garment at this point in time. And he wrapped a towel around him, which is how they did it back then. A master of a house would never have done that. That would have been very undignified. It kind of reminds me of, remember when, when uh, David was criticized by his wife for kind of dancing around half naked, praising God? Kind of similar to that. It just wasn't proper for a master to do that. But he took off those outer garments, wrapped the towel and this was showing absolute humility to take on the form of the lowliest servant, even as much as undressing and then wrapping the towel around his waist. And he took care with each one. And, and again, remember, you know, it wouldn't be like us. We might have a little stinky, you know, in our shoe. But, you know, we're talking about bad here. And they might be covered in sores. And he took the water and he took the towel and he took care with each one. And I want you to think of this. He washed every one of those disciples' feet, including the disciple who he knew was going to betray him. Think about that. And after explaining the meaning of the whole thing to his disciples and how they should be doing this, and not necessarily just washing the feet, but being this kind of servant, being humble enough to serve other people, in this way, he tells them that if they do this, if they have this attitude of a servant, and if they have humility, that they're going to be blessed because of that. And so I think you can see why it's hard to come up with this modern day example that would have this much meaning. I think maybe, you know, maybe if you're an emergency room nurse, you might get this. 
because you've probably seen some ugly things and had to deal with it and clean it up and all of those kinds of things. But I'll tell you, there's one example at least, and there's an example of, of someone in this church, and I won't mention her name because I don't want to take her, her reward away in heaven. But this young lady actually has gone down into the street where the homeless people are and brought her tools and equipment because she does hair and washed and cut hair for homeless people. Now, I, I thought of that, and I thought, you know, that's pretty close. you got to be pretty humble to do that. you got to be pretty courageous because you're dealing with as much stink as those disciples had at least. You know, sometimes it's hard. I mean, sometimes even... You know, a homeless person walks into church and they're sitting right next to you. It's hard to sit there, isn't it? It's really hard. But what a great example of humility. And I know that there's many people in this church who go and feed the homeless and, and, and those types of things. And those are, those are wonderful things. Um, and, and maybe you could come up with an example that, that, that you see that would be similar enough to, to really get this. Um, but it comes from a heart of caring and a heart of humility to serve in that particular way. And you know what? Just as Jesus told those guys that they'd be blessed, you know, when you do something like that, you're, you're always blessed. You know, anytime that you do something as a servant to someone else with the heart that Jesus had, you will be blessed by doing that. I know particularly, you know, my wife and I are on the meals ministry and we bring meals to people and I just got to tell you, it's one of my most favorite things to do. As much as I love to teach or lead worship or teach in a class or counsel, just bringing a meal to someone is such a blessing and they're always so appreciative. And by the way, we've had a few of those delivered to us in the past couple of weeks because we've had some things we're dealing with and it's a blessing to receive as well, I'm not as good at that part. But sometimes, sometimes we miss opportunities to serve. And, and part of the reason is because we get too wrapped up in the wrong ideas of what servanthood is all about. I want to read to you a poem. And this is an old poem. So for you younger guys, you may not quite get all the language because it's kind of King James language, but, but hopefully you will. They said the master is coming to honor the town today. And none can tell at what house or home the master will choose to stay. And I thought while my heart beat wildly, what if he should come to mine? How would I strive to entertain and honor the guest divine? And straight I turned to toiling to make my home more neat. I swept, polished, and garnished, and decked it with blossoms sweet. I was troubled for fear the master might come ere my work was done or before my work was done. And I hastened and worked the faster and watched the hurrying sun. But right in the middle of my duties, a woman came to my door. She had come to tell me her sorrows and my comfort and aid to implore. And I said, I cannot listen or help you any today. I have greater things to attend to. And the pleader turned away. At last the day had ended, my toil was over and done. My house was swept and garnished, and I watched in the dark, alone. Watched, but no footfall sounded. No one paused at my gate. No one entered my cottage door. I could only pray and wait. 
I waited till night had deepened and the master had not come. He entered some other door, I said, and gladdened some other home. My labor had been for nothing, and I bowed my head and I wept. My heart was sore with longing, yet in spite of it all, I slept. Then the master stood before me. His face was grave and fair. Three times today I came to your door. I craved your pity and care. Three times you sent me onward, unhelped and uncomforted. And the blessing you might have had was lost. And your chance to serve has fled. Oh, dear Lord, forgive me. How could I know it was thee? My very soul was shamed and bowed in the depths of humility. And he said, the sin is pardoned, but the blessing is lost to thee. For comforting not the least of mine, you have failed to comfort me. And I look at that and I say, Lord, how often have I really missed the blessing because I thought something else was so much more important. Um, You know, God says that we have to serve the least of these, and in doing so, we serve him. Now look, in the long run, it's really not so much about what you do in serving people. There are many different ways to serve. But what it's really more about is the motivation for your doing it. And that brings us to the number three way to live like Jesus. And that is this. We need to know that Jesus walked in love. And that word love is agape love. And you've heard me say this word. You're probably sick and tired of me saying it, but I'm going to say it again tonight. When you hear that word, burn it into your brain because it's a love like no other love. And if you think of love in the way that we do in our society today, this will never work for you. It'll never make sense. Everything Jesus did was motivated by agape. And that word is a Greek word that denotes a kind of love that's willing to sacrifice oneself for others and to serve them without expectation of anything in return. That's what that word is. In John 13, 34, he said this, A new commandment I give to you, that you agape one another, even as I have agaped you. And that you also agape one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have agape one for another. And the reason, again, it's so important is because agape love is a choice. It's not a feeling. It's not an emotion. It's a choice you make based upon what Christ is doing in your life. Paul states unequivocally in 1 Corinthians 13 that anything we do from a motivation other than agape love is of no, zero, nada, nothing. It's worth nothing in eternal value if it doesn't come from love. So to live like Jesus, we must also let agape be our motivation. And so we say, well, okay, but how do we know that we're walking and and acting out of that motivation, walking in love? Well, the nice thing is that 1 Corinthians 13 has the answer for us. It's a measurement. It's something we can look at and go, okay, or not okay, as it may be. You see, it's a word picture of what agape is. 
and what it's not, what it does and what it doesn't do. And again, I've taught on this a lot, so we're not going to go through every word uh, on this, but I think just say, uh, taking a quick look at it, so if you just look at 1 Corinthians 13, starting in verse 4, and I'm going to use the word agape, so it's burned into our mind, so we're not thinking of any other kind of love. This is a love that's a choice. 1 Corinthians 13, starting in verse 4, says agape is patient. Now, when you think of these, don't just think, oh, whether I'm a patient person or not, or I'm a loving person or not. This is in relationships. This is totally relational. This is how we deal with other people. So we ask ourselves that question in terms of thinking of our relationships. Agape is patient with other people. Agape is kind with other people. Agape doesn't envy other people. It doesn't boast about ourself. It's not proud of ourself. Verse 5, it doesn't dishonor other people. Agape is not self-seeking. Agape is not easily angered. Agape keeps no record of wrongs. Agape does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. And that's in terms, again, of relationships. Agape always protects, it always trusts, it always hopes, always perseveres, and agape never fails. So that's our word picture. We can look at this and say, wow, does this look like me and my relationships with other people, or does it not? And, and most likely, some of them are going to look at it and go, yeah, that's, that's kind of the way it looks like. And others, you're going to look at it and go, no, that doesn't look like me at all. And so we can look at it and say, okay, God, this is where I'm not surrendered. This is where I need help. And again, think of it in terms of relationships, not just some abstract concept. But I'll say this to you. You know, you could fake this for a while. You could look at those and you could fake it. You could pretend to be patient and kind and, and those kinds of things. And, and if you do that, a lot of people will think very highly of you. You might fake it really well. But I'll tell you this, it won't last forever. There'll be a breakdown at some point in time. And I'll tell you where it usually happens. It usually happens in your marriage and in your family. You see, unfortunately, I see people in the church... And if you looked at them, you thought, wow, these guys are, you know, I mean, they're servants, they do things all the time, they treat people here kindly, and then you find out what their home life is like, and you realize they're hypocrites, they're fakes, they're phony. Because if you can't demonstrate this at home, it's not real here. And think about that. If you can't demonstrate it in your home, it's not real here. You can fake it for a while. But the only way you can truly walk in love, the only way that you can truly demonstrate those things is to be attached to the one who loves you that way. The one who loves you in that very way. Jesus has promised that if you stay attached to him, the Holy Spirit will give you this kind of love. And when he does, you'll see these characteristics, these traits manifested in your life. So remember, you can't manufacture this. And, and, and to know that and understand that is very freeing. And I, I'm telling you this because that was me. I wasn't trying to fake it. But when I would read those things, I would go, okay, i got to be patient. i got to be kind. I, I have to do these things. And I was trying to manufacture it. 
in my own strength, in my own power. I didn't understand that God was the one who would give me the power to do this. I was trying to do it on my own. And what I wanted was people to go, oh man, that guy's a real Christian. Let me talk to him. Let me find out what he's all about. And then I thought, now I can share the Lord with him. But you know, deep inside, I was kind of miserable and I was burning out because I was doing it in my own strength and my own power. It wasn't real. I wanted it to be real, but it wasn't. And I, again, I wouldn't say I had a real bad motivation, but in essence, you could say it this way. I couldn't keep up the pace. I'd look at those words and I couldn't keep up the pace. It was too hard. And when I finally learned what it meant to have the power of the Holy Spirit work in my life, everything changed. That's why I'm so adamant that we teach the power of the Holy Spirit in the Firm Foundation class. So that you won't be like me and start out as a Christian trying to do these things in your own strength and your own power. And as I, as I just spent time with Jesus and grew in my relationship with him and, and daily would ask the Holy Spirit to work in my life, all of a sudden, things changed and I wasn't striving to do those things. And I really just wanted to love others with the same love that Jesus had. And I wasn't so worried about trying to look at each one of those traits and saying, I'm doing this today, I'm doing that today. No, Lord, just fill me with your spirit today. Fill me with your love for people. And I'll just let you do what you want to do today. What a freedom in life there is when you can rest in his power and in his grace and his ability to give you all of those traits, to give you the kind of love that you need to have. So I'm going to ask you again, are you in that place tonight? Are you one of those that's been trying to manufacture it, to work it up? Even maybe, you know, sometimes when you come in and worship and you're trying to manufacture that, you don't have to. Just choose to praise God. That's all you got to do. Make that choice. God, I'm a mess tonight, but I choose to praise you. Will you help me praise you? And guess what? He will. He will inhabit the praises of his people. So you don't have to play that game anymore. If that's you tonight, you don't have to do it anymore. Tonight you can make the choice to say, I'm giving all that up. I'm going to quit trying to do it on my own strength, my own flesh, and try, quit trying to manufacture it. Now look, if you were to narrow down this list of three things of how well you are living like Jesus, what do you think would be the most important? Hmm, kind of a tough choice. But I think... There is a concept that we can understand that will help us with that. Jesus, when he was asked which commandment of the law was the most important one, said this. Most of you are familiar with this. Luke 10, 27, he said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and all your mind, and your neighbors yourself. Jesus, when questioned about this, said, It's love. Why? Because love is the motivation for all of those other things. And if we want to live as Jesus lived, then we have to rely on the Holy Spirit to give us the ability to love our neighbor. You see, rather than looking back at the beginning when we talked about, well, what, did it look, what would it look like to live like Jesus did and say, well, we all have to give up our jobs and, you know, go out on the street and be homeless and minister in that way? No. Your life is going to look different than my life. All of our lives are going to look different. Some people are going to be in paid uh, missionary work or in paid pastoral work, and it might look a little bit that way. But you know what? The majority of Christians, their life isn't going to look like that. 
And that's not only okay, it's good. It's good. God has placed you where he wants you. He's put you out someplace in the world for you to be used by him and to live like him in the area that you live in. You don't have to be anybody else. He's got a different calling for you in terms of your work. He's got a different calling in terms of each one of us in terms of family or interests that we may have. The common factor is that we're believers in Christ. And our commitment is to be obedient to him and to surrender to him. That's the common factor. We don't have to look alike in what we all do and how we all serve. And I would encourage you, just in the way that in our first verse we're exhorted, that if you truly claim the name of Christ, then you want to walk as Jesus walked. You want to live like Jesus lived. Now, if that's been a struggle for you, if you say, yeah, I kind of get it, but that hasn't been my life, and and maybe you were one of those that said, yeah, I, I've been trying to fake it because I don't want anybody to think I'm not a Christian. So I have been trying to fake it. Or maybe your motivation has been for other people to admire you instead of just having the motivation of agape love for other people. Or maybe you haven't been willing to humble yourself enough to just even serve people. Maybe that's hard for you. Maybe you've been unwilling to really lay your life down because you are afraid of losing control of your life. Maybe that's your struggle tonight. Well, all of that could change in this very night, this very evening, by surrendering your life to the Lord. And I'm going to ask Shane to, to come up. And I've asked him to do a special song tonight because the key to all of this is, am I willing to surrender my life. Now, some of you, most of you I know, and most of you I know you have surrendered your life. But I want you to ask that question tonight. Have I surrendered my life fully? Or am I struggling with some of these things? Am I really not living the way Jesus did because I'm doing it on my own? Whatever it may be in your life. But there also might be someone here you've never surrendered to the Lord at all. You, you've never even heard that you needed to. And if that's you tonight, uh, as we sing this song, I want you to think about these words. And for all of us, as we're singing this song, please don't just sing this song tonight, but, but follow the words of that song. And if that's the desire of your heart tonight, and if it's been a struggle for you, and you want to make sure that tonight I am going to commit, maybe in an area that I haven't committed before, I'm going to make sure that tonight I leave this building fully surrendered to Christ so that I can live like Jesus lived, because I claim the name of Christ. If that's you, then just do this during this song tonight. As you're singing those words, say, Lord, help those words come from my heart, because I want to surrender to you tonight, once and for all. I want to get this accomplished. I want to live by the motivation of your love and serve the way that you serve.